Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Tenth, a podcast about the rich history, culture, and contributions of the Tenth Circuit Courts. I'm your host, Leah Schwartz, a Wyoming lawyer and former Tenth Circuit law clerk. And I'm producer Tina Howell, the Emerging Technologies Librarian for the Tenth Circuit. On today's Q&A episode, we interview a significant Tenth Circuit figure about his career. Our guest is David M. E. Bell, Senior Judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Born in Wichita, Kansas, Judge E. Bell attended Northwestern University and later received his law degree from the University of Michigan. He clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Byron White and practiced in Denver with the firm of Davis, Graham, and Stubbs for many years before becoming a law professor at the University of Denver and a senior lecturer at Duke University. Today, he shares stories about his path to becoming a lawyer and later a judge following his nomination to the Tenth Circuit in 1998 by President Ronald Reagan. He reflects on his experiences, significant cases, and lessons learned. So to start out, Judge, I wanted to ask you a few questions about you, if that's okay. All right. How did you end up in Colorado? Well, after college and then law school, at college at Northwestern University in Chicago, and then law school at the University of Michigan, I had married uh, my wife, Gail, and uh, then was selected in my third year to clerk for Justice Byron White of the Supreme Court, as you obviously know, or I wouldn't be here talking to you. At the end of that year, we knew we uh, could pretty much go wherever we wanted, but you only had one choice. You only had one crack at it, because after that, you would get clients and you'd kind of get roots down and you wouldn't have the flexibility and mobility anymore. So we wanted to be very careful about where we selected. We picked 10 criteria of what we thought would be good indicia of a nice place to live. Then we picked 10 cities that we thought would be good, credible places to live. The criteria we thought for happiness that I could get data from the Library of Congress, because we didn't have computers back in those days, of course. Average age of the populace, because I wanted a young population. The average education level, a crime rate for obvious reasons. Divorce rate, because I thought it mimicked how happy people tended to be. We had 10 criteria and um, ranked the cities and agreed we would go whichever city ranked top. And Denver, on each criteria, it usually was in the top four or five, and it cumulatively was the best. So here we are. That is amazing. I did not expect an answer with that much research going into it. And have you been happy with your choice? We have. We have never found a city we like better than Denver. We've traveled all over America and many places in the world and have never found a city we like better than Denver. That's wonderful. How and why did you become a judge? Everybody assumed I would be a lawyer. There was no lawyers in my family, but I was obviously uh, like to argue. And I thought being a trial lawyer would be pretty awesome. So I took the exams. And by then, in my senior year at Northwestern, I had met my wife, Gail, and we had only been dating for three months when the college was over. She was going to teach in Chicago, and I knew I didn't want anybody to uh, step in on, on my uh, interest in her, so I only applied to really two law schools, to Stanford and at Michigan, and I'd got into both schools and decided Michigan was a whole lot closer to Gail in Chicago, chose Michigan. So I would say my choice there was a matter of heart. Yes, Absolutely. So um, after you became a lawyer, you practiced in private practice for many years, of course, Yes. Um, or in Denver. But then how did you decide to become a judge and what was that uh, evolution? 
I had always thought I wanted to be a judge because you can't clerk for Justice White at the Supreme Court and not have that idea pop in your head. So over the years, I would say, gosh, one of these days I'm going to apply for a judgeship. And Gail told me that she thought I should do that. When uh, the, the district court judges called me in after I'd practiced about eight years or 10, all the federal district judges were there and they said, we want to ask you to be our new bankruptcy judge. And I said, why? And they said, well, because Judge Mache was our bankruptcy judge and he got elevated to the, to the district court. We think that same route is available for you and we'd like you ultimately to be our colleague, but we'd like you to be a bankruptcy judge. And so I was so excited. I called my dad and said, dad, can you believe it? They've asked me just a young punk to be their bankruptcy judge. And dad had just one question for me. Do you like bankruptcy law? And I say, no, no, I had a bankruptcy case. I don't want to do that. I said, you take that job? I said, but it'll lead to, it'll lead to a district judgeship, they thought. Dad said, if you take that job, you will not like it, as you've said. You will do poorly. Nobody will like your work, and that will be the end of everything for you. You'll be on a dead-end road. So I turned it down. Then, about eight years later, a federal district job opened up, and once again, they contacted me. And this time, it was the White House that contacted me. And they said, we want to nominate you. I went back and got interviewed and vetted. And they said, we now offer you the job on the federal district court. It was my lifetime goal. But I said, well, give me a week to talk to the other judges and see if that's where I'm best suited. So I took the week, talked to each of the other judges. And at the end, decided that it wasn't the perfect fit. I would have enjoyed it, but it wasn't my perfect fit. And so I turned it down. And they were furious. They said, nobody has ever turned down an offer for a district judgeship after you've gone through the vetting process and wasted all of our time. What do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to be on the Court of Appeals. They told me that was now not a realistic option anymore because I was completely in their blacklist. So I came back, decided to run for attorney general position. I thought I'd pursue a political career. An opening on the 10th Circuit occurred. Uh, President Reagan nominated two other people. And both times, the Senate rejected them incredibly. And then he was nearing the end of his term, his second term, and the Senate had become Democratic. So now Reagan, a conservative Republican, had to appease the majority of the Democrats. And so one day I got a call. I was in Colorado Springs. Uh, they, they came rushing to me in a meeting and said, you got to go out to the payphone out in the lobby, because that's all there were, no cell phones. And they said, the White House is calling you. And I got to the phone and said, stand by for President Reagan. And it was about a 30-second conversation. The entire conversation was, David, this is Ron Reagan. I said, well, Mr. President, what an honor. And he said, as you know, David, there's an opening on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. I said, I understand that, Mr. President. He said, you know, David, you're not my first choice for that position. <laughs> I said, I, I do understand that. And he said, in fact, David... You weren't even my second choice for that position. I said, I understand that too. He said, but apparently you're the only person I can get confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Would you please take the position? I told him I would. He thanked me and hung up. And that was the extent of the conversation. I got confirmed within uh, just maybe a 20-minute session of the Senate unanimously. The rest is history. The rest is history. That is incredible. Well, you obviously didn't offend them too much. They kept calling. <laughs> Wow. Well, I had but at that point we had Senator Armstrong, the Republican senator, and, and Senator Tim Worth, the Democratic senator. So I had to be the 
top or near the top choice of both of those senators, which I was, I'm told. And that kind of helped pave the way. What's your favorite thing about being a judge? Intellectually, my favorite thing is just being able to grapple every day with exciting, hard issues. And I keep scratching my head and saying, why are they asking me these questions? Why do they think I know the answer? And of course, I don't. I don't. But the lawyers know the answer. So all I have to do is choose between options, which is a whole lot easier than coming up with the idea on your own. Plus, I have very smart law clerks, plus the fact I have very smart colleagues, judges. And so I read the briefs. I talk to my colleagues. I talk to the clerks. I go back and forth. Most cases, I, during the course of studying for it, I will decide I'm going to affirm, and then no, no, I'm going to reverse, and then no, no, I'm going to affirm, and then what the heck do I do next? Uh, but eventually, it all comes to a clarity. So I love that back and forth, the intellectual engagement. I, I love dealing with my clerks who are just wonderful people and go on to do magnificent things. I love the public service of it, where I'm not beholden to anyone. Uh, all in all, it is truly, for me, I, I could not have had a better fit than this particular job. Yeah, but I've always had a, an itch uh, having turned down the trial court. And so I, after I became 65, I started taking a regular draw on the federal district court as well. And so I've tried many cases now, both the jury trial and trials to the court in Colorado. And I've got a big case pending now in Utah as well. And I've had cases in Oklahoma and other places. And so I'm really enjoying now being a part-time district judge. So things come full circle. Absolutely. What is your uh, least favorite thing about being a judge, if, if there is one? Well, probably the relentless work. After I took senior status, I kept 100% draw on the circuit court, but I also added about a 20% draw on the district court, and I added sitting with three other circuits. So I was at about 160% or so of, of a full-time judge. It's pretty relentless. I think maybe uh, six or 700 pages of writing come through my desk every day, and I obviously can't read all of that, but I can read what I have to read. My clerks help me sort it out. Uh, you obviously read all the briefs. Seven or eight hundred pages includes the record, opinions from other judges, uh, precedent, and all those things. So you figure out well. Eventually, you know a lot of that precedent. You trust your clerks to help you find the important parts of the record, so you don't need to read the whole record yourself. And you figure out ways to be smarter. Outside of being a judge, what do you most enjoy doing? I'm kind of like the Platte River, uh, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. I actually made quite a conscious decision on that at one point to really dig down deep and become a super expert in something or just love everything. And I chose the latter is really my personality. And so I like everything. And every Thursday, my clerks and I have lunch where we cannot talk about the law. We have to talk about something other than the law. And we've done everything from Barbie dolls and fashion, to Japanese fighting kites, to uh, railroads, everything you can imagine, history, uh, countries where we try to go out and eat at a cuisine appropriate to that country. It's just a potpourri of, of interesting things that these smart law clerks give me an access into that I'm, I, I love and I, I admire them. And I, of course, couldn't do anything like I am doing without their help and without my colleagues. How would your colleagues on the bench describe you, do you think, Judge? I think thoughtful and well-prepared. Uh, I think that because when I came on the bench, uh, I got some comments about that, uh, that, that people said, uh, this is a, a kind of a different approach than we're used to, in, just in terms of the detail of preparation. 
I think I'm perceived as a moderate, and I love it when I'm sitting with uh, in other circuits like the Ninth, which has some very strong liberals and very strong conservatives. I'm often the moderate in the middle, and therefore I my vote usually is the controlling vote. Uh, but uh, I would say they describe me as a moderate, very hardworking, very detailed, and I believe they would say almost always accurate. Twice I thought I made a mistake. In both cases, I sought out the lawyer from years earlier when I came aware of the fact I thought I had ruled wrong and told them in both cases it was too late at that point to get a rehearing. But I said, maybe you will find an occasion when we rule on a similar issue in the future. One time I actually, we did get a similar case and I petitioned, I mean, I joined the petition for rehearing to overturn my prior precedent. The other case I told the lawyer, if you find another case that comes up on this issue, please ask us to revisit our precedent. I'm sure I've made many more mistakes than that, but those two I'm aware of. And my job isn't to be right in the first place. My job is to be right at the end. I've never heard of a judge going out of his way to apologize about a ruling or acknowledge that. We all have occasions to do that. And I I sure didn't take this job to hurt somebody, to make a wrong decision. That certainly was not in my job description when I took the job. Do any particular cases, Judge, stand out to you in the course of your career? Lots of them. I'll just give you only one example. One of the cases I'm most proud about is a case that I was not shown as the author. It was a case that the Tenth Circuit so disliked that they spontaneously, sui sponte, unbunked it and reversed us seven to three. And the only three judges that voted our way were the three on the panel. I wrote the opinion, but we had another judge assigned to author it because it was a very politically charged opinion. And that judge, we thought, could deliver this bitter message better than I and a moderate or my panel, third panel member who was identified on the other spectrum. So we had both bookends and me in the middle, but we thought this was a case that one bookend was against that bookend's views and that if that judge wrote the opinion, it would be more acceptable. Uh, it was called U.S. v. Singleton. It's a very short-lived case. You'll see it immediately reversed. There's a statute that said it is illegal to offer anything of value for someone's testimony. Anything of value. So we had a guy who petitioned a habeas uh, federal court. Uh, he had been convicted on the testimony of a co-conspirator. And they flipped the co-conspirator by offering him a sweet plea deal, where he only served a few years. The defendant that was before us served many years. He said to get a plea on the promise that you'll get eight years off of your jail sentence is certainly something of value. We agreed, isn't it? Isn't eight or 10 years of your freedom as valuable as a few dollars in your pocket? And so we said, We're not ruling constitutionally. It's just a statute. If we're wrong, Congress can change it. But oh my gosh, the legal world went. Uh, I would use a a stronger descriptive. But the U.S. attorneys all over America were furious at it. And because I can't use the confession of a co-conspirator, thank you, Judge E. Bell and the other panel members. The society owes you a great debt. And then a week later, I mean, another uh, U.S. attorney elsewhere would do it. The drumbeat was amazing. My mail was amazing. 
And I said, if you don't like it, Congress, just change the bloody statute. But how can I, with good conscience, say that years of your life isn't of value? In any event, I think the case was right. I think we showed integrity. Uh, I think we stood up well to the, the political fire of it. And it all went down into a flaming defeat. Wow. So did the statutory language change in the end? It didn't. I, I followed the case for a couple of years after that. It had not changed. Fascinating. Who are the people, Judge, who have meant the most to you, just with respect to your professional life as a lawyer and judge? As a lawyer, it was Bob Harry, who uh, was uh, the litigation partner, senior partner at Davis, Graham and Stubbs. He taught me one thing. Being a litigator is telling a story. And that made all the difference to my success as a litigator, because I always tried to tell a story. Sometimes I've even had the clients opposing me at the end when I had won the case come up to me and say, if we get another case, we'd like to hire you because we finally understood your story when you gave the closing argument. And before that, we just thought from our lawyers that it was all the questions of burden of proof and this statute and that statute. But it's not. It's about stories. And if you look at at the Old Testament, if you look at fables, Aesop's fables, if you look at fairy tales, every message is delivered with stories, not with the pomposity and three-point tests. And so he taught me to be a storyteller. It made all the difference in the world to me. Incredible. It's a good model for our podcast then, isn't it, Judge? (laughs) We're just talking about stories here. Who has meant the most to you in your personal life? Oh, my wife, Gail, we've been married now 58 years. What advice would you give to young lawyers starting out in the profession? One of my Thursday lunches with clerks is advice that I would give young lawyers starting out in their profession. And I have about 10 things. One surprising piece of advice is how are you going to be enslaved? Law is hard work. And your partners and the firm are going to want you to work harder than you want to work, than you should work, than any reasonable person should work. How are they going to do it? And every crook says, you're going to be fearful you fail. You're going to be fearful you're going to be fired. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose a case. You're going to be disgraced. I said, no, 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 no. That's not the currency they deal with. They don't deal with fear because you are all so good that you are not legitimately going to be afraid of being fired. It's just not going to happen. You're too good for that. Instead, they've got a more powerful currency, the currency of praise. And they are going to say, David, you are so good. The client absolutely insists on you. You're the only one who can win this case. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Well, I I, I really was hoping to take a vacation with my wife. But my gosh, if they think that highly of me and you think that highly, I guess I have to tell my wife I, I won't go on the vacation. And one day, after about 15 years of practice, it hit me like a load of bricks that I was sacrificing too much else, not out of fear, but out of praise. And why should I let somebody control me by the cheap currency of just saying nice things about me? It was one of the most liberating moments of my life. So that's one of about seven or eight things that I would I tell my clerks is advice I would give young lawyers. Thank you for that, Judge. That's good for me to hear right now at this moment in the midst of trial prep. I, I see you packing your bags right this very minute, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard, though, because 
you know, where do you find the professional satisfaction as a lawyer? You know, it's doing well by your clients, doing right by your clients. I think that's the yeah. main thing. Yeah. But that's diff- that's distinct from praise and caring it what is, other people it, think it, of you. It, it, it is. But you see, you can control that by the number of your clients. You can't control it by the quality once you take the case. What was hitting me was not that I'm going to do each case half-heartedly or slipshod, but rather, why do I need to keep taking more and more and more cases? And the first time after this epiphany came to me, and the first time the firm came to me and said, we've got a new client just coming in the door, but they only want you. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not available. I walked out there like a load of bricks had been lifted off my back. Because when I do take a case, you have to give it all. Because somebody's trusting you. How can you say to somebody, you've trusted me with the most important event in your life. I'm sorry, I'm going to go fishing today and I'm not going to get ready for the trial. You couldn't say that. And you wouldn't. Nobody would. So it's not taking shortcuts with your clients, but it is deciding when to say, I'm just not going to take this new issue. Let yeah. somebody else in the firm do it. <laughs> and and they found people and it all worked out fine. But it was, it was an interesting piece of advice because it was counterintuitive to me being a type A person that you want to always achieve. You always want more. And more isn't more because more chases out other mores in any event. So I have a a list of those things that I I give. That's one piece of advice I would give. Beware of the currency of praise. Not that you shouldn't seek it, not that it shouldn't be a criteria, but when it is being used to bribe you to do things you don't want to do, say no. This episode was produced and edited by Tina Howell. Subscribe and download at the Historical Society's website, tenthcircuithistory.org, or at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Special thanks to Greg Kerwin, Brent Cohen, Stacey Guion, and Diane Bowersfield. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>